Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest questions in philosophy, theology, nature, and life with experts in those fields. I really love thinking about cool stuff, so you're invited to come think with me. Today's episode is another special one. I always say that, but I wouldn't have them if they weren't special to me. I have with me again, Dr. Sandy Goldberg, and Sandy is a professor of philosophy at Northwestern. And uh, recently, he also became a professorial fellow at the RK Center uh, at the University of St. Andrews, which is huge. Uh, They're both huge. So this guy is so utterly productive. It's unreal. Um, It's it's crazy. He was just doing all his work at the APA and and he's he's here back on the podcast today. So um, I'm really, really grateful for him. I love the way he thinks. Today, we're going to be talking about what you should have known. And I think it has all sorts of implications. in, in theology, in apologetics, in the uh, theist-naturalist debate, uh, as well as just philosophy uh, and epistemology uh, more generally. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk with Sandy right, right now about this. And then I'm excited for you, the listener, to grab what, what he's worked on and run with it in your various sub-disciplines and different fields, related fields. So I'm really excited. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon if this is your favorite podcast, if this is top five, top 10, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. I always feel like I'm on the WTTW. This is brought to you by viewers like you, but it, it really is. So you can find a link in the description, uh, wherever you're getting this podcast episode, uh, to my Patreon. And you can give at various levels of support and you get all sorts of prizes at different levels. So uh, check that out and please consider becoming a Patreon patron. All right. So without further ado, let's get in. We're going to be talking about what you should have known with Dr. Sandy Goldberg. Sandy, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Parker, it's fabulous to be here. Thank you for inviting me back. Yeah. Last time we talked about brains and vats and um, uh, disquotational uh, speech and such. And it's been really helpful since. Uh, I've, I've been I've thought about it earlier today. I was listening to a, a live podcast episode uh, on MindChat, and they were getting into semantic externalism. And I was like, man, because because of Sandy's work, I know what they're talking about. Oh, so that's great. That's really great. Yeah. So, well, we, we covered that, and that was uh, some of your work from a while back. Um, but but now we're going to getting getting into something a little bit more recent that you've been working on. What you should have known. And uh, I'm really really pumped about this. Do you remember um, why this sparked interest for you? I do. I actually have a very vivid memory of, of exactly the moment in which I, I thought there's a question here that would be worth pursuing. <clears throat> I had just given a talk at a, um, I think it was at the University of Iowa, and uh, we went out for um, uh, a beer afterwards, and we were having a conversation that was actually not distinctly philosophical, and one of the um, people had said to me after I made a comment, uh, well, well, Sandy, you should have known that, and I thought mm. to myself, hmm, what could that mean? Well, it could mean that I have the evidence and I just didn't realize that I had the evidence. And on the basis of that evidence, I could have known it. But in this case, I didn't have the evidence. And yet I still had the feeling that that I sh- that the student was right. I should have known that. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make sense of it. And that's where this project emerged from. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so um, there, you, you specify there's, there's different cases, there's different ways that you could take this uh, question uh, or this phenomena of should, should have known. Um, 
but but the one that you have in mind in in this paper that that uh, we're pulling from is that uh, there's these cases in which a subject should have known a proposition, even though given her state of evidence at the time, she was in no position to know it. And uh, and it's it's kind of controversial, and we'll get into that. But uh, real quick, this this core analysis of it, um, you say that, uh, and this will be hard for for a podcast, I guess. But we'll that's why we're talking through it. S should have known that P when one another person has or would have legitimate expectations regarding S's epistemic condition. Two, the satisfaction of these expectations would require that S knows that P, and three, S fails to know that p and so um that's that's really good it's really easy when you see it it's a little bit harder when you hear it uh sandy can you can you uh give us an example of, of this sure um let me let me just uh, back up just a a bit first to make the point that you made uh in passing there are all, all sorts of ways in which we talk about each other as, as um you should have known this you should have known that mm. for example there's a really nice example um that's owed to the the ethics literature um where I might forget my my mother's birthday, um, and if I forget my mother's birthday, uh, and she calls, with, you know, she's she's hurt by this. She said, "Sandy, you should have known. Yesterday was my birthday." There's a case where I did have the evidence. I, in fact, mm. there's a sense in which I actually even knew it. I just didn't act on that knowledge. And so, yeah. sometimes we do describe that as a, a should have known case. There are other cases where, um, you know, for example, imagine a, a bunch of detectives who have all the evidence needed to set, to to, um, to arrive at the the right. Um, the right diagnosis of what's gone on, but they just didn't put two and two together. Yeah. Uh, we might say that they should have known only they had the evidence. The cases I'm interested in are the cases where you should have, we say you should have known something, even though you didn't have the evidence. Yeah. Um, what, what's my thought here? The, the core analysis you just talked about, it is actually a rather straightforward idea. It's that sometimes people expect me to know things and I don't know them. <laughs> and the fact that I don't have the evidence doesn't give me any um, claim against the, their claim that I should have known them. So that's what I was trying to capture in the core analysis. Yeah. Oh man, that's so good. Uh, real quick, Sandy, I think that your, uh, your mic's bumping your lapel just a little bit Okay. and, and it's bumping. So just, uh, yeah. Okay. It sounds better. There we go. Perfect. Okay. Um, I just, just a random thought kind of popped up about, um, uh, thoughts and like, uh, not all of our thoughts are current thoughts or, or knowledge. And, um, I wonder just how much how much that comes into play when it um, when it comes to those cases of your mom's birthday. So you you know when your mom's birthday is presumably, but it uh, but you forget. Um, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you still have that knowledge? Like, it's not a current. It's not, it's not, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking in philosophy mind terms. It's not like part of your, your access consciousness uh, right now or anything like that. But what, what do we make of um, having that information but not recalling it? Just just a, a brief, uh, sorry to, to digress here. No, that's okay. It's, it's, you make a nice connection with the, between epistemology and the philosophy of mind. I am, uh, Parker, still inclined in that case to think that, that I know it. Here's one piece of evidence. If you stopped me right then and there and said, hey, Sandy, when's your mother's birthday? I could give you the answer very quickly. Uh, okay. Um, if, if, for example, if the question occurred to me at the time, uh, when is your mother's birthday? I would have quickly known that it was that, that day. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so these are all grounds for thinking that I actually did know it, but I just didn't bring it to mind. And I'd point out that the idea in philosophy of mind, I think the idea that we have long-term memory, um, that itself is based on the idea that it's, that somehow they're represented in memory. It's just that it's not being actively, as you said, accessed. Mm-hmm. It's not in working space, if you like to put it that way. Um, yeah. so I, I think it does make sense to say that I knew it. I just didn't act on it. I didn't bring it to, to, to mind as it were in, in the way that I ought to have. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so, so we went over the, the, the core analysis here. Um, and then you have this controversial claim. Um, it's, it's that there, there's these three conditions and they're sometimes jointly satisfied. It's like, yeah. you, can, can you just uh, flesh that out a little bit for more for us? Like why, why is that so, so controversial? So, um, so, so here's a way of seeing why it, it's controversial and, and it, to get it, to get it, why, I, I may have to do a little bit of background in yeah. um, contemporary uh, epistemology, but the thought that you should have known something, even though you don't have the evidence on the basis that, that it would be required to know it. Many people will say, um, look, there are lots of things that we, um, there, it, the, if that's true, if it's actually true that you should have known it, the flaw is going to be something other than an epistemic flaw. It's not going to be a distinctly epistemic flaw. Yeah. And the controversial part of my claim is that it's a distinctively epistemic flaw if you should right. have known something and you don't. Why is that controversial? Uh, for two reasons. One, um, the should that I'm using there is not, it's not the should of epistemology. It's the should of, if you like, um, it's kind of an interpersonal should. Hmm. Um, it's a, It's the should... We can talk about this in a bit, and I'll be happy to say more, but it's not an epistemic should. And the thought is that um, uh, if that's true, um, and if 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 it is anything like a moral should, we often expect, many people expect that we have control over over what we should do or should Mm -hmm. not do. And so if this is really something more like uh, a moral should, then it would imply that if we should have known something, then we should have believed it. But of course, we don't have control over what we believe. And so this is one of the reasons why it's controversial. Yeah. But a second reason why it's controversial is that many people think that when it comes to our, uh, evaluating one another from an epistemic point of view, the only thing that really matters if we're, if we're interested in evidence at all is the evidence that a person has. If they don't have evidence that they should have had, that might, have be, that might be a kind of failing, maybe a professional failing, maybe an interpersonal failing. Um, maybe a failing as a, as, a, as a parent, but it's not an epistemic failing. And the controversial claim that I'm making in the paper is that, in fact, it is, it can be an epistemic failing. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Uh, I think I have another chance to bring up one of my favorite uh, words is doxastic voluntarism. I love that yeah. so much. If you were a doxastic voluntarist, meaning uh, you could choose your beliefs um, to, to various degrees, but I mean, people are all over the map on that but uh then this this wouldn't be as big of a problem because uh yeah you you should have changed your beliefs but um as far as as i know mm, that's not a very popular uh theory in in epistemology today is that right that that's correct it also it's not just that it's not a popular theory that even suppose you are a doxastic voluntarist um, the the position you just characterized runs into another problem which is this and it's a problem that i i've often been confronted with even not as a doxastic voluntarist, but I think it's worse for the doxastic voluntarist. And the thought is this, wait a, wait a second, are you saying I should choose to believe something for which I currently have no evidence? How could that possibly be rational? Yes. And the thought is, the thought is that, that that's a challenge. That's something that you have to have something to say about. Uh, I do have something to say about that. I think the doxastic voluntarist also has to have something to say about that. Yeah, and that's a really good point. Um, if we're holding someone responsible for... Um, 
for not knowing something you should have known, but you don't, we're going to hold you responsible. And the person in that position asks the subject is like, do you want me to make a non-rational uh, leap here? And and if it's non-rational, does that even count as, as knowledge then? Now we got, we, Edmund Gettier enters the chat and, and we, we, we bring about uh, Gettier problems and such. I, when I first read this, I thought, um, I thought of ought implies can. Um, and, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people in more popular level philosophy, like we talk about this all the time. Um, and I, and I thought a, a similar case here that it's like, uh, if ought implies can, and you're holding me responsible for something I could not have known, but I, I ought to have known, it seems like we're violating this ought implies can principle. What, what do you think about that? So um, it, I think that that's interesting on, on many levels. I'm inclined, <clears throat> ought implies can is, is one of these principles where I'm not exactly sure what I want to say. I, I mm -hmm. tend not to like to say anything inconsistent with it, not because I believe it, but but because I know that if you say something inconsistent with it, the burden is on you to say uh -huh. what you think about ought implies can. But the other thing is when I, uh, I often think about uh, epistemology as a, a discipline that puts us in a position to evaluate one another's uh, beliefs uh, or, if you like, credences, more generally their doxastic states, where I'm not entirely sure that for the evaluation to be proper, we don't need an ought implies can principle. So I might say, um, I might say all sorts of things that, that uh, talk about all sorts of standards that in the best kind of world one ought to fulfill, and that can be true even if a particular person couldn't right now, given, given her, her competence, she couldn't fulfill it. So um, I would point out that this, the ought implies can principle is relevant uh, only if we treat the um, should have known phenomenon as something that is beyond a merely evaluative claim. And I haven't, I haven't thought all that much about whether I want it to be beyond a merely evaluative claim. Um, if I did, I'd have to think more about ought implies can. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So um, uh, Kasim Kassam has talked about how, how possible questions um, it's just how how is this phenomena possible? And I, I thought about that when I was reading your paper. Um, how is your paper seeking to answer? Is your project seeking to answer the the how possible? How is this phenomena possible? Given that we you know maybe we we take it um, maybe uh, we are particularists and we say look I don't want to develop necessarily a method for a given but but I'm a particular we we have this phenomena we know about it. Um, is your project to to like elucidate how it's possible, or um, what would you? How do you consider uh, your your project with the the should have known phenomena? So so with Kasim, as I recall, it's been some time since I read the book where he he focuses on that. I seem to recall that he was interested in what I would call deep metaphysics, the deep mm. metaphysics of how possible claims. Um, I'm I'm not so much interested in the deep metaphysics here. Uh, mm -hmm. as I am interested in making sense of how we actually evaluate one another. Yeah. You are absolutely correct, Parker. It's a nice observation. I, uh, in that sense, I'm interested in how is this possible? How, how can we, maybe how can this be a practice that makes sense, yeah. uh, that we hold one another to these standards? It appears to be a kind of epistemic criticism when we say of someone that she should have known when she didn't. Uh, how can that be, given that we have these views in epistemology that seem to, um, that seem to make this an impossibility? So in that sense, I am I am engaging with the how possible question, but it's really to make sense of our practices more than than the deep metaphysics, if you like. Yeah, that's something I noticed um, with with your colleague, uh, Dr. Jennifer Lackey, as well, that, that maybe it's a, a Northwestern thing. But you guys take you guys take 
uh, common phenomena and things of, of everyday experience. And you say like, we're going to go in deep. We're going to, we're going to get clear on these things, but it's not just, um, it's very practical. This, this has everyday implications. And I think that's really cool. Her stuff, a lot of her stuff has to do with law. Um, you just wrote a paper for, was it the New York times? I can't remember. Um, no, uh, the Chicago tribune. Yeah. Yeah. The trip. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, can, can you just uh, briefly, uh, what, what was the title of that? Uh, I forgotten the title of it, but it was oh, about sorry. the, it was, about, <laughs> I should have, I should have, uh, I should have practiced this before the, the, the podcast, but it was about the, the, uh, the recent case, uh, the Ghislaine Maxwell case. And I was trying to think about, uh, what kinds of criticisms can be made of, mm. um, of those surrounding her. And I noticed that a lot of people were, uh, we're talking about uh, those who who clearly knew what was going on and did nothing. And I think that that's that's an important point to make. I think there were many people around around um, Ms. Maxwell who actually who knew what was going on and did nothing. I was also interested in trying to see if we could make the case that uh, it's often that there are many people who should have known where ignorance is actually no no excuse. Yes, you should have known. And so what I was trying to do in that pa- in that little op ed piece was point out that when we are assessing these kinds of cases, these terrible cases like the the Maxwell case, but also more generally, we can be held to standards uh, where our ignorance in certain respects doesn't excuse us from being held accountable to those standards. So that was the point that I was trying to make. Hmm. Um, I think it's called the real lesson of the the Ghislaine Maxwell case. I think that's what it was. Okay, that sounds right from from when you said I should have known it too. Um, I just brought that up because I think it's so important that philosophers are talking about real stuff and being in, in papers again in, in newspapers uh who better i i just have such an admiration for philosophers and i just want to uh, hire uh, a larger voice and a larger uh influence on the culture i guess but let's make more philosopher kings in in my mind uh, so I'm, I'm really excited about that so everyone uh go find that as well if you want to see the uh, even more real world application for uh epistemology and should have known stuff um which is just just fantastic uh, you, you brought up ignorance and as I was reading this paper, I just thought that the, the hook I had already, the concept or the hook to hang my, my, my concepts on was uh, culpable ignorance. And I thought maybe you could help us distinguish, you know, is this, um, is this, a uh, within the family of culpable ignorance? Is it a cousin in a related field? Uh, what do you make of the should have known phenomena in comparison to culpable ignorance? Good. So, so it, I think that the culpable ignorance debate goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle um, recognized that um, there are things that can excuse us when we haven't done what we should have, what we should have done. Obviously, not having the ability to do so might be might be an excuse. Arguably, it actually gets you up altogether, and it's not true that you should have done it. But even suppose that I, you know, I, I'm supposed to pick something up, but I, I break my arm and have to go to the hospital. That that that's clearly an excuse. Aristotle noticed that also ignorance can be an excuse. Um, that if you don't know something, uh, that, that actually can be. So if, suppose I don't know, for example, that, um, I don't know some of the facts. So I'm serving, I'm serving a particular drink. This one I think goes back to, um, uh, a discussion about the nature of reasons, but I'm serving a particular drink to a friend of mine. What I don't realize is that I picked up what happens to be a cup of petrol, uh, or gasoline rather than water. Um, you shouldn't give somebody a glass of, of petrol. It's actually, it's, it's toxic, but I didn't realize that was petrol. So it might well be that when you're assessing my, what I, my performance, what I did, you'd say, well, well, Sandy didn't know that. And, um, the fact that he was ignorant that it was petrol actually excuses his behavior. We wouldn't say that he did, he did, he did something that was not the thing to do, <clears throat> but we will excuse him for it. So 
Aristotle noticed that not all ignorance excuses. Sometimes your ignorance is itself culpable or blameworthy. Um, and so when you, when you are to be blamed for your ignorance, then in fact, um, you know, then in fact, you can't, your ignorance doesn't excuse you. So if somebody had said to me, uh, you know, Sandy, be careful about, about two thirds of the cups around here actually have petrol in them. Um, and it, suppose I, I heard that, but then I, I immediately forgot it because I wasn't paying attention. Uh, you might say that then my ignorance was blameworthy. It's culpable. And so it doesn't, it doesn't excuse me. Hmm. And what I wanted to do in this paper is see, is it, have I just basically come up with a new kind of culpable ignorance? And what I wanted to argue is that the should have known phenomenon is different in part because it doesn't necessarily imply blame. There are cases where you should have known something where you don't know it, albeit through no fault of your own. So it was very important to me in the paper that I say, this is not just another form of culpable ignorance precisely because um, your ignorance may actually be blameless and yet still you should have known. Mm. Um, so so that's, that's why um, I, I do think it's different. The kind of case that I give is a case involving um, role responsibilities. If you have role responsibilities, um, those responsibilities might include responsibilities to know certain things or check certain sources. And if for some some legitimate reason you weren't aware of those role responsibilities, that doesn't mean you don't have them hmm. and uh, you might fail to satisfy them. And I give a couple of examples in the in the in the paper itself about how this might happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's really good. I, I think of uh, I just initially I was thinking of this movie uh, Knives Out. Are, are you familiar with this movie yes. at all? Yeah. Good movie. So, yeah. Yeah. Great movie. So so the the. Um, the nurse uh, accidentally gives the wrong medicine to uh, her patient. And I don't know if I should spoil it. It's been out for a while. So sorry, everyone. But it turns out to, to not actually be poison. Um, but if it were, I, I, I think um, she would, she should have known that it was the right, she, she, uh, that it was a different vial. But then it, it, it there's this weird case where there's um, the nephew switched uh, the labels on the vials and all this stuff. And, and so uh, things get more complicated uh, throughout the, the course of that. But um, I think about speeding uh, and, you know, if, uh, if I get pulled over and I tell the police officer, uh, sir, I didn't, I didn't know the speed limit. I, I didn't see a sign. And he goes, well, that's, you know, no excuse. Uh, th that would be like a case of, of culpable ignorance. Um I'm trying to think of a position where I, my position is driving and there's like a, um, a should have known, like if I was a truck driver and I didn't, uh, pull over to the way station or something like that. Um, is that, do, do, does culpable ignorance and should have known, do they align, uh, in some cases and then depart in others? Is there kind of this interweaving like that or it's going to depend on, on our, on our analysis of, of what are the conditions on culpable ignorance, because some mm. people think that culpable ignorance can always be traced back to a condition when you were fully knowledgeable about the likely, the likely effects of what you were going to do, but you just, you were either weak willed or you went forward anyway. And in that kind of case, it won't be like my should have known case uh, okay. in part because you will have had evidence that would have put yeah. you in a position where if not that you'd know, at least you'd be justified in believing something related so um, to, to give to give concrete cases, imagine that, for example, I am uh, I'm on a team of scientists and I um, I am supposed to as a member of the team, I'm supposed to do um, a literature search every month and report back to the team on any whether there's any new developments. And suppose suppose um, uh, uh, <clears throat> I learn that um, early on that. Uh, there's only going to be a 50% chance that there's going to be relevant uh, literature. And somebody, somebody who's actually very knowledgeable tells me that. It's, it's testimony that I have. But I, I decide not to do it anyway. You might say, look, uh, there, 
it is it's culpable ignorance because I had I had evidence that there's a 50 percent chance that there's going to be a new development. And I decided to ignore that. That would be culpable ignorance, but not a should have known in my in my case, in my sense, because there you actually had some evidence. Okay. I'm interested in the more radical case where you didn't have evidence at all. And yet still you should have known. So um, so that that's why they they do. It's going to depend on how we analyze should, the, the culpable ignorance cases. Yeah. OK. So um, when it comes to to um, not the the uh, should have known case, you don't have evidence. Does that include like uh, uh, culpable forgetfulness? Like at the moment, I don't have it anymore because I I forgot it and I don't have access to it. Like it's 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 out of my memory. Uh, or does this mean like you had no contact with the relevant evidence at all? That's that's a really nice question, and I haven't thought about it, but the, my thoughts off the top of my head, Parker, would be this. The, the standard kinds of forgetfulness cases, the cases that, that, that we see in the ethics literature, like I forgot my mother's birthday. There's a case where I definitely had the evidence. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't call it to mind. Um, you're wondering what happens if I, there's a case where I had evidence, but I forgot it, and I, it, I literally forgot it, and I can no longer rec recall it under any circumstances. Yeah. Then I'm inclined to think, if we think of that as a forgotten evidence case where the evidence is no longer in my possession, then it will be a, a should-have-known case in my sense. So it's okay. going to depend on it's going to depend on a theory of what it is to have evidence, especially under conditions where we forget things. Um, yeah. That, that's yeah. what you're getting at. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. And I think um, you could probably even break it down even further and say, well, I got hit in the head with a rock. And so that, that would be different than um, I just didn't recall it enough to keep it in my, in my memory or something. And, and one might be more uh, culpable or, or should have known more like if there's external uh, events that, that caused me to forget than if I just let things go and then I, I lost it completely. That's, this is so good. This is so fascinating, such fascinating stuff. Um, I wanted to talk about the, the main sources of legitimate expectations regarding another's epistemic condition. So there's, we expect, I expect that you should have known, the, the grad student expected that you should have known. And uh, I just want to go over like, what, what are the sources that, that lead us to expect others to know things? So it, I find it helpful in addressing cases like this to start with real life examples. So think of think of the kinds of things that you expect from uh, I don't know for those of you who are graduate students the kinds of things that you expect from your the chair of your uh, dissertation committee. Think of the kinds of things that you expect uh, from um, uh, you know the other faculty in the department. If you are a faculty member, think of the things that you expect from the chairperson in your department. These are all things where either because of the roles they play or because of the relationships they have with us we actually have certain expectations. Those expectations, it's important to point out, are often normative and not merely predictive. So when I expect that, uh, that for example, the chair of my department uh, knows such and such, I'm not merely predicting that she knows such and such, mm. I'm actually holding her accountable. That is, um, if she doesn't know such and such, then then she is to be downgraded because she violated a, an expectation to which I was entitled, a, a normative expectation to which I was entitled. Um, where do these come from? I think they come from our roles. They come from social practices. Uh, when we participate in social practices, especially if they're norm governed, if they're governed by norms or rules, uh, we, ent we entitle others to expect us to know those rules. Um, you know, so think of a very simple case. If you are playing in a uh, um, uh, uh, European football, we, in the States we call soccer, but uh, European football league, um, and you're a member of the team, everyone is going to expect, you know, the rules and, um, it may happen that you actually never sat down and learned all the rules. That doesn't matter. If you violate one of them, uh, they, will, they will say to you, you should have known. You should yeah. have known that rule. It doesn't matter that you never learned it in the first place. 
Um, those are the kinds of things that might generate these expectations. What I wanted to point out was that um, the expectations themselves are legitimate only if the practice um, whose norms they reflect is legitimate. And that's, that's a good question. When, when are these practices legitimate? That's a, it's a great question in social philosophy or political philosophy that I thought only a little bit about. I'm happy to try to spitball with you here, but I would be lying to you if I told you that I have a good theory of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. So, um, so again, though, these are, these norms are not, uh, epistemic. They are, um, interpersonal norms. Yep. Um, or they, I think in the paper, I call them practice-based norms. They derive from practices. Okay. Uh, a, a helpful clarification I think would be, um, we, we can hold people morally re responsible for violating um, interpersonal norms, right? Yes. Do we, do we hold people morally responsible for violating uh, epistemic norms? Uh, I think we do. Um, th this is here. This is not, not news. This is, uh, if you remember, the very classic case in um, discussions about, uh, um, you know, believing on evidence. There was the, the classic uh, Clifford paper where he yeah. talks about, he talks about, you know, it's always everywhere um, wrong to, to believe on inadequate evidence. What he was getting at is, I can do moral damage to you. I can certainly put you at moral risk if I don't believe on adequate evidence. So the thought is, you can hold me morally responsible if I actually have evidence, but don't form my beliefs in accordance with it. So I, I sell you something knowing full well that this thing is dangerous, but I never tell you anything about this. Uh, maybe I don't tell you because I, I decide I'm just going to ignore all of the evidence that I actually have, and I'm yeah. just going to form the belief that it's safe. You can more, hold me morally responsible for failing to live up to epistemic standards. So the answer is yes. Is that is that only if there if the consequences are are, are dire? You know, I'm, I'm thinking maybe um, in less extreme cases where where health isn't at at risk, but um, oh, I I I've thought about Clifford a, a lot because I, I wanted to apply it to rational inference and say like if you see that uh, there's two premises and you see that they both uh, that that this argument is uh, valid and that both premises are are true you should affirm the the conclusion and i'm trying to figure out what kind of norm that is uh like it's clearly a norm of logic yeah um if you actually um if you uh, assume two premises and the premises imply the conclusion, then you can think it's a norm of logic that you should endorse, that you should embrace the conclusion. Uh, although some people, we, you have, we have to be careful here. You probably know this literature. There is a distinction we might make between wide scope and narrow scope. It might mm -hmm. be that what logic tells us is not so much that you should endorse the conclusion as you should never endorse both of the premises without endorsing the conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to leave it open whether... Um, what combination, uh, what, what acceptable combination we accept. So it could be that that's what logic tells us. Yeah. Um, well, and so, so there, there is a, 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 there is a norm there between the, the premises and the conclusion, it, it seems like. Um, but we, it's a different type of norm than the interpersonal. Do we, can we hold people responsible for seeing those two premises and, and actively trying not to affirm the conclusion? Like I'm just trying to get like the, the ethics of, of inference here. Good. That, that's a, it's a nice question. Um, it, can, can I just <clears throat> play the philosopher for a second and just make it more Please. complicated before yeah, I answer, which I, I apologize about doing this. So it raises lots of questions. One is the question whether 
forget logic for a moment, whether uh, epistemic norms are, um, whether they can ever make, there, there could be such things as epistemic duties, or yeah. rather whether all epistemic norms do is give you permissions. Many people think that epistemic norms are merely permissive. Hmm. Um, and the only things that they allow, that, that, they, that they forbid are, are doing things that are not permissible. Um, you're actually asking whether they can actually mandate whether that you believe. So not merely permissions, but requirements. That's, that's, a, that's a stronger view. Um, and the second question is, and this is another big question that many people have thought about. David Christensen here comes to mind. What is the relationship between uh, the norms of logic and the, the norms of uh, epistemic norms, norms of belief, if you like? Yeah. Um, those are both complicated questions. So your question is complicated by both of those. I mention this because it may well be that what one takes on your question is going to depend on what how one answers those two previous questions, mm. if, you, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I do. Um but but now let me let me not play the role of the philosopher and try to answer your answer your question. Well, that's 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 really really helpful when you do that. I love that. I, just real real briefly, um, I I don't want to overcommit. I want to because I I don't want to go back and fall into doxastic uh, voluntarism and say like, look, if I don't see it, I don't see it. Make yourself see it. Well, now we're getting into non-rational stuff and and it's a problem. But but rather, uh, if somebody tries to suppress the 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 belief in the conclusion they're they're actively trying to put themselves in a position where they wouldn't believe it and it's like i would want to say you ought not do that good so so let me give you another case that's not your case but i think might shed light on it awesome um imagine imagine that um there is a very very salient fact about our our uh environment so in evanston <clears throat> once a month they have a this, this is old fashioned, but they still have a um, an alarm that goes off throughout the entire uh, the entire city. It also happens when uh, we have um, street uh, when there's more than two inches of snow and to, to signal that everyone should get their cars off the street. There's a very loud siren. Now, imagine that someone did you hear that today? Uh, I did not. We we actually have oh, okay. a forty. I think it's forty five degrees today, so it's lovely. Oh, nice! Um, I heard the the uh, tornado alarm. I think today. Uh, no, I here, yeah. we we did not we did not hear anything like that, <laughs> but. Um, so imagine that someone actually says to you, you know, I, I've never heard that before. I've lived in Evanston all my life. I've never heard that. We might well say, you know, that's strange. That's really weird. We might not even believe them. And we might think that if they didn't get all you have to do really is be anywhere where you're not in a vault and you're going to hear that. And, mm -hmm. and that might be a case where we would say, well, you should have heard it, where that should is not merely predictive, but also there's a sense in which, look, this is the kind of thing that we just hold everyone to in Evanston, given how pervasive it is. Um, that is that kind of you should have done that is an indication of the kinds of expectations that we have of ordinary people. I'm thinking what you're getting at in your logic case are the kinds of expectations we have of ordinary reasoners. Mm. If you actually see P and you see, you see if P then Q, um, if you see that, uh, we're just going to expect that you're, you're going to infer Q or else you're going to give up one of the, if you're not going to infer Q, you'll give up one of those two premises. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's good. That's really good. And, yeah, that's good. That's good. We can we can leave it there. Um, so so going back to uh, like practice based, um, uh, you, you give some some recognizable cases, and I thought uh, we could further you know elucidate this with uh, different professionals whose expertise uh, exactly. rationalize our reliance on them. Yep. So um, yeah, what what do you think? What are what are some some uh, professions that do this for us? Yeah, any profession on whose knowledgeableness we rely, I think, is such a profession. And what's interesting about these professions is that they often have explicit norms of what they expect of professionals. And the, so think of think of a doctor, 
Uh, more specifically, think of an anesthesiologist. More specifically, still think of a, you know, a pediatric anesthesiologist. Um, it may well be that, that there's a, um, the College of Anesthesiology and the College of Pediatrics actually have explicit norms about what kinds of knowledge is expected of doctors. That's one of the reasons why when you go to a, um, a pediatrician or a pediatric anesthesiologist, you're going to expect that you're going to be treated up with the, um, the level of confidence that's warranted by whatever the state of the art is in that, in that area of medicine. It's precisely because you are expecting them to be not relevantly knowledgeable or think about going to a lawyer. Or in general, and this is one that's gotten me very interested recently, think of the phenomenon we call expertise, whatever form it takes. Um, the, for, the, the, the notion of an expert is someone who has a kind of knowledge that is, that is or can be available for, um, for, if you like, non-experts or lay people to rely on. But in relying on it, there must be some kind of practice wherein we can be, we can be filled with a sense of uh, confidence that our reliance is not going to get us into, into trouble. And mm-hmm. these are the, the norms of the practice, social practices we have of relying on, on experts. Yeah. Um, and what, what those norms will be will, of course, depend on what the practices are, will depend on what the, the type of expertise is in play. Uh, does that make sense? It does, and you anticipated. I wanted to go in on norms and and how we how we uh, determine those. I think, in cases of doctors, uh, and and the even more fine grain you go, uh, it becomes very explicit because there's all sorts of laws. Uh, I think about the expertise phenomena, and I think about philosophers, um, guys like uh, like Roger Scruton said um, he he had this kind of norm where he thought it was like preposterous that a philosopher. Um, could study just a, a a really small area and have no political opinions. He was like, well, if you're a philosopher, then you need to have the full range, the full scope of, of beliefs. Whereas others would say, no, that's not how we do things. And that's not the, the state of play. And that's, that's, you know, maybe back in the 1800s, but we're different now. Um, so when, when things are contested like that, how do we, and, and you'd have to define philosophy and good luck, you know, um, when when they're contested within the uh, enterprise within the the field of expertise, who's to say? How, how do we adjudicate um, the ought to know or the the should have known principles? Someone says you should have known. And you say, well, that's not within the scope of it. continental analytic divide. You know, who knows? Yep. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good question. Um, what to say about these cases when there's expert disagreement? I'll point out that expert disagreement is, it raises many problems for uh, for epistemology and for social epistemology. Uh, there's some really really superb work on this by lots of lots of folks. So for those of you who are interested in it, just do a Google search on on epistemology of expertise. You'll find lots of great work. I, I my two cent opinion on this, and I say two cent because I haven't thought about it as long as I'd need to to have serious confidence. Um, is that when there's serious disagreement among the experts, um, then it's not true in, in most cases, uh, it won't be true that there's anything that one should have known precisely because the state of knowledge itself is in flux. So you can only level a legitimate should have known claim against someone or charge against someone when there is something they should have known when that is there's something there to be known. My worry about serious expert disagreement is that there's nothing to be known precisely because of the of the disagreement among experts. In uh. cases where there's expert disagreement, but something is known, there you there those are going to be more complicated. And there you might well get a a should have known. Um, I don't know really right now what I'd want to say about those cases, but that is a case that I whose possibility I acknowledge. Okay. Yeah, the the uh, disagreement stuff uh, really freaks me out. It's it's so tricky, so tough. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So so um, 
so getting back into practice generated uh, entailments, um, is it just this question of why why is it that playing certain professional or institutional roles gives one epistemic responsibilities? Um, it makes sense when we think about, you know, this doctor, uh, of course, you know, they, they're a doctor, they should have known. It makes yeah. sense when we just take it, we just kind of take it for granted. But when you try to analyze it, it's like, um, did this person, when they when they passed their exam or when they shook the president's hand and they walked across the stage, now they threw their hat in the air, now they're a doctor or whatever. Um, now do they have these um, practice-generated entailments and, sorry, already? Entitlements, yeah. Entitlements, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah. Do, do they have them when they throw the hat in the air? I, I, I don't want to bring up, um, uh, you know, the vagueness problem or anything like that, but but I'm, I'm just wondering, is it is it a fuzzy concept or something? Good. Let, let, me, let, me, um, let me answer your question indirectly. Mm -hmm. First, by giving you a sense uh, of a concrete case where, where I think these, um, the, the expectations that we have of people are clear. So imagine that I'm talking with someone at a dinner party uh, and I have, I'm having problems with one of my um, drain pipes and somebody announces um, that, that, that she is a, um, she's a plumber and, uh, and she says, here's your problem. Okay. Now um, I haven't hired her, so that's going to be a complication. Um, suppose I then go on to hire her. I hire her in part because I expect that she knows about plumbing. Mm -hmm. That expectation is in part predictive. I predict because she is a plumber, she will know, but it's not merely predictive yeah. because if she doesn't know, I don't just conclude, oh, I guess I was wrong. I conclude, oh, I guess I was wrong. And by the way, she did something wrong. There was something bad that happened here. That's mm -hmm. the normative expectation. What entitles me to that expectation is the fact that she announced that she's a plumber and I hi hired her under that, under that uh, rubric. Okay. So your question is, okay, so at what point in her education does it become true of her that there's a lot of things that she should know as a plumber? Yeah. Uh, and that's a great question. My, the the, the um, partial answer I'll give you is once she is certified as a plumber, she now inherits all those responsibilities. Mm. Question, what about before that time? That can be a hard case. I'm not sure what to say there. It depends on what the, you know, the educational practices are. It may well be that she can help be held responsible for, um, for, for certain things under certain circumstances by her teachers, although not yet by the, the public. Yeah. Um, it's going to be very complicated, but certainly by the time she gets the, the degree and hangs out a shingle and says, come hire me as a plumber, she inherits all those responsibilities. That's good. That's good. And and that doesn't seem like an arbitrary solution to the sororities paradox because it's that's the, the social uh, rule. That's what we do. We, that's why we give out right. certificates and such. That's right. Um, I, as you were explaining that, I, I think I, I more fully understood uh, when the uh, should have known uh phenomena is raised it, it seems like when there's dissonance between um prediction and norms I, it, I, it it can it can get there um i mean there, there are lots of cases where it can be raised really the, the, the cases where it's raised is when i have a responsibility that responsibility requires that i know something and i don't know it and where does that responsibility come from another person's legitimate expectation yes. that's when they that's when it gets raised yeah yes okay okay um i, I hope i hope this isn't uh I hope this doesn't put a target on your back or anything. Um, so, so just heads up. But how about how about uh, when can someone come to expect you to know what a philosopher knows? Um, is it once you've? Uh, some people say uh, a PhD is just uh, an excuse to 
is just a, a license to do philosophy. Some people say that about PhDs in philosophy. Um, do you think that's similar? Is it similar to the plumber case that once you have the PhD, uh, you have uh, you have uh, the duty? Or um, is it once you become a, a professor of philosophy? What do you make of that just off the off the cuff? That's that's a, a uh, it's probably the answer is probably not, none of the above uh, mm. for reasons that are, are uh, maybe a little complicated. But let me see if I can. Philosophy is a hard one in part because if you ask, what does a philosopher know? Well, do I do I really know? Suppose I have a theory, a theory in, in epistemology or a theory in philosophy of language, what the case may be. Do I do I really know that my theory is true? Well, even if my theory is true, and that's already a big if, yeah. um, even if it's true, you might think, and in fact, this is a this is something that I I, I try to defend elsewhere. Um, we don't know it because there's just too much disagreement in philosophy. Disagreement actually leads to uh, a situation in which none of us is justified in thinking that our, our our theories are true, at least not in cases where there's a lot of where there's systematic disagreement. That will complicate the question um, about what we are entitled to expect philosophers to know. That's something specific to to, to philosophy. Nevertheless, you ask, there's another dimension to your question that strikes me as interesting. Is it just getting the PhD or is it becoming a faculty member? Getting the PhD actually is a kind of social signal. I think you're right to point that out. It's not entirely obvious to me that merely in virtue of getting a, a PhD, um, you entitle other, people's to, to other people to make expectations of you about what you know as a philosopher. Mm-hmm. Maybe you entitle them to expect you to... Um, to 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 uh, know a little bit about what it is to get a PhD, maybe I'm not sure about that. Certainly, once you are hired in virtue of your PhD, someone is paying you in virtue of your PhD. Then you start inheriting uh, these um, responsibilities that you have to live up to. So mm-hmm. that that's another way in which I think your your question is a nice one and is a complicated one. Sorry, Parker, yeah. I don't know that that answered it. It just I complicated. No, it it, it, it it complicated it, but it it brought up another point I wanted to ask you about, which is um, there's different categories of these should have known cases. There, uh, you lay out in the paper at least that are professional, institutional, and personal, and um, the the most obvious cases seem to be um, the institutional ones when when an institution has deemed you uh, a certain type of person, then all these uh, all these come with it. Um, the personal is the one that's the trickiest, I think, for me. Yeah. Um, to to understand, and maybe maybe that's the case. Like, what what should what ought we know, and what ought we expect from one another? Professional is a little bit easier too, because you got job descriptions, and right. so if you sign on to that job description and you don't know what you ought to know for that thing, then now we can start holding. We can say you should have known. Right. Yeah. So here I was inspired by a, uh, an article that was written some time ago by, by um, a philosopher by the name of John Gibbons. Uh, um, I forgot the name of the paper. It was in mine some time ago where he noted uh, something that actually st- struck me as very, very common. He had a case where there are um, there's a, a couple, two, two people who are, in, you know, um, uh, they're in a, an intimate relationship. They've been living with each other for a long time, and they, they've developed a practice of leaving sticky notes on the refrigerator when they need something. And mm. one of the members of this couple um, goes to the uh, goes to the store without having consulted the note and so fails to, to, to know that they needed milk. Um, had, had he consulted with the sticky note, he would have seen it. He didn't. So he didn't buy milk comes home says, I didn't buy milk. And the the partner says, but, but you should have known that we needed milk. Um, Even though he didn't have the evidence because he didn't consult with the uh, sticky note. um, John's intuition was that um, his belief that they didn't need milk was defeated. 
uh, by evidence, by that evidence that he could easily have had. The way I like to put it is not the fact that he could easily have had it. It's that he was expected, properly uh, expected to have had it. Yeah. So here's a thought for you, Parker. In, in, our, <laughs> in our relationships with one another, we develop these practices of relying on one another and relying on what each other knows, where if you violate that practice, they're often, as you pointed out, it's not usually made explicit. until the moment when someone violates it and then you'll have a conversation about it but i do think that we have these expectations of of our of our friends of our family members and so forth yeah and and um i keep raising all these all these i'm bringing in all the tricky stuff from outside uh but i I think of like the is ought problem uh which is a hairy tricky crazy situation i understand um but um yeah like you said they're not they're often not made explicit until they're violated and then you get this. Well, look, if if we had been if we had never talked about the sticky note situation, um, we just started doing it. It kind of became a practice. I, I I was under the impression that we don't always check those. You were under the impression that this was a stated thing. Like, well, of course, you have to check these notes. And so I go, look, we never we never talked about that. And now we're back to adjudicating um, my my uh, my norm, whether this was a, a norm or whether this was just a a fact of, of history that, that we had done this. Right. A regularity that we relied yes. on, but without being entitled um, to, to rely on this, this is, this is, a, these are really good questions. What, one of the challenges here is how difficult it is to argue about norms and normative yeah. expectations. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what I would say from the perspective of, of the theory, and I think this, this is actually a nice little uh, prediction is that um, insofar as it's not clear whether this was really a um, a practice or just something that that evolved with neither one of us really relying on it in the right kind of way, to precisely the degree that that's unclear, it will be exactly as unclear mm-hmm. whether uh, I was entitled to rely on you or you were entitled to rely on me. So it will be exactly as unclear whether the should have known allegation is true or false. Yeah. So whatever fuzziness there is in normative expectations will be matched perfectly by fuzziness in should have known allegations. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. I uh, we need we need epistemologists in the court. I think because I can just imagine people bringing this stuff up on. Uh, Judge Judy and like she should know she should read your paper before she uh, she gives her her judgment because the, this is super applicable. Uh, the institutional cases make more sense, uh, even professional stuff. But some of the some maybe small claims court uh, judges. Well, need, let, need just to a couple of couple of quick comments here. One um, should have known actually is a notion in in the law. It's a very it's you'll often see in the law either you if the person either knew or should have known. That's a very common phrase in the law. Um, what's interesting about the law when I looked into this is that it it, it never got a systematic explanation for mm. what should have known meant, and so. Um, there have been several lawyers who actually have um, reached out to me and asked me, could could my notion? And I told them, I think that there are cases where this is a nice explanation of the should have known in the law. Okay. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, this is just to give a shout out to my colleague, Jennifer Lackey, whom you meant, mentioned earlier. She has done some superlative work in, in this connection, both in the, in the epistemology of law generally and also thinking about what kinds of things are relevant where people should have known them. And if they didn't know them, uh, what implications should we draw? So I just want to plug her work because I think she's done some really, really marvelous stuff in this regard. Yeah, so awesome. I, I love that people have reached out to you. I that's what I meant earlier when I said like I think I think philosophers uh need to be I think people need to consult philosophers more often because <laughs> we literally pay you guys to th- just think all day. So 
you know, use them, use the thinkers. I, I love it. Um, and I love when it, when it can, it can have practical implications, uh, and applications as well. I, I love the abstract. Um, as, as you see, I keep pulling you into the more abstract and you give me these concrete cases and bring me back, which is nice. Um, but just to further, uh, bolster the fact that philosophy is, is practical and ought to be used in everyday life as well. Um, so Sandy, you, you talk about, uh, epistemic, epistemic reasons to believe and how, um, it could be dissociable or, or separate. It can be separated out from practice generated entitlements. Um, can you, uh, can you define that for us and then help us see why those two are not the same thing or sure. How- yeah. It, it's it, simple, simple case here. Not, not from my paper, but just easy to see this. So suppose, um, you know, my kids are all out of the house now, but when they were younger, uh, my partner and I might say things like, we expect you to be home by 11 o'clock tonight. And when we stated that expectation, that was clearly a normative expectation. You can imagine that my partner and I, when we talk about it, um, we recognize that we have all sorts of reasons to think that our kids are just not going to live up to the standard tonight. Uh, we, you know, we, we are really dubious that they'll be home by midnight uh, or by 11. We might still say to them, we expect you to be home by 11. Um, so that shows you that there are reasons to believe. If you ask us, do you have reasons to believe that your kids are going to be home by 11? She and I might say, no, we actually have reasons to believe they're not going to be home by 11. We're still entitled as their parents to expect them to be home by 11. So the thought is you can get really nice uh, dissociations between reasons to believe and entitlements to expect um, in any case where you might have reasons to believe that people aren't going to live up to what, they, what they're responsible to living up to. So that's where you get these dissociations. Okay. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. Um, so I, I wanted to to see if we could we could apply this into a, a different field and and specifically philosophy of religion. Uh, most of my audience are are students in theology or philosophy or philosophy of religion. Master students usually. I got a lot of PhD students as well, and some professors as well. Um, and I just thought your work is so good. I want to put it out there into other fields. And I thought maybe we could apply this in philosophy of religion. Uh, if we use like Russell, um, Bertrand Russell, someone asked him, uh, you know, Mr. Russell, what happens if you die and you see God? Uh, what, what do you say to God? And he says, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. <laughs> um, and, and I wonder if we could apply this uh, here and to say like on the conditional that God does exist, um, does he have, could he have an uh, entitlement to expect Russell to believe, even though um, he didn't have the evidence. Let's take Russell at his word and say, you know, he just didn't have enough evidence. Yeah, that's that's a nice question. It's actually um, very, very theological, and so I'm I'm on very shaky grounds because I am no the- theologian. <laughs> no worries. Um, but it would. It, it, so the question that I'm going to ask is actually a slightly a slight variation on your question. Does mm-hmm. my theory predict that that um, God would have an entitlement to expect? Um, and there, the answer is going to depend on what we think, um, what we think of as the relationship that we have or the, uh, the practices that we have um, up and going. My inclination is to be somewhat skeptical because I do think, first of all, I, sh- I should mention, uh, and I, I mentioned this to you ahead of time, I am, I am an, an atheist. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm entertaining this for the sake of argument, but, but, um, but not, it's not my, my, uh, my normal way of, of thinking about things, yeah. even, even if I were a believer. Um, I would uh, the theory would predict that it's only if 
there's something that entitles God to expect that of us. In this case, the, the best case I could think of might be a moral expectation. Mm. The challenge for my mind is when I think about moral expectations, I think of them as the kinds of things that arise in interpersonal relationships. Yes. I don't know whether they generalize to the, the, the God-human relationship. So there are all sorts of questions that would have to be answered before you could actually come up with an affirmative. Yes, God would be entitled to expect us to, to, to know. Yeah, that oh, this is so helpful, and I think because um, because you're an atheist, and I, I forgot the the language you used. Um, uh, uh, do you remember that that I, I'm um, I, I'm sad that I'm an atheist? Yeah, yeah I yeah. wish that I could be yeah, a believer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, reluctant, which I, I think was a term reluctant, right. reluctant, reluctant atheist. Yeah, yes, yes. And I I I love that. I love that's why I wanted to ask you about this because we get an outsider perspective instead of just talking to to atheists all day. Um, so uh, John Schellenberg has this hiddenness argument. Um, are you familiar with that at all? I don't expect you, you to should. Be, but... You should probably go over it. I mean, I've heard yeah, of it. But I... it um, so um, he's, he's an atheist uh, philosopher uh, in the philosophy religion space. And he says, you know, if, if God did exist, then uh, he'd want a relationship. With, he'd be open to a relationship with anyone. And so um, if that were the case, there wouldn't be anyone who is a, um, an, an honest unbeliever who who would have a relationship with God if he exists, if he would make himself known, um, that person wouldn't exist. But there are people that exist who who kind of like yourself, actually. You said, you know, you're reluctant. If, if God would show himself to you, maybe you would believe. Um, and so, you know, because Sandy exists, uh, maybe God doesn't exist. And so um, that might be a, a case that, look, you'd need to solve that hiddenness problem in order to establish this interpersonal relationship uh, in which there would be uh, in entitlements uh, that God could have on you, but yeah. but that would that would mean that you would have the evidence, right? You would have evidence of God's existence, and so it might not be the same case that you're. It, it would about mean here. there would have to be evidence, not necessarily that I would have it, but that there would ah, have to be evidence. Yeah. Ah, ah, ah yeah. okay. Yeah. When, and would it have to be interpersonal evidence in like uh, a relationship with God, or could it be like what theologians call general revelation that that God's uh, there's there's signposts to him in nature, the cosmological argument or teleology, such. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I would put any restrictions on on the evidence, whatever kind of evidence, as long as it really is evidence. There would have to be evidence, and then my my flaw as as an atheist in this case would be that I didn't get the evidence that I should have had. Which had I had it, I would have known that God exists. That's the way I would analyze these cases if they are possible. Again, I tell you, I'm not sure that they're possible from the perspective sure. of my theory, just because of these complications with uh, where would where, where where would God get these entitlements from, but if that can be solved, that, that that's the way I would think about it. Yeah. Well, and I thought this could be an interesting new debate between um, uh, naturalists or atheists and, and theists of, of every different stripe to say, look, you know, even if he does exist, I'm not entitled. Uh, he, he doesn't have an entitlement. He doesn't have a claim on me to, to know that he exists. It's, the, it's on him. And then the theist can say, well, no, it is. And, and back and forth. And I, I just think it's one more case where uh, your work has application uh, in practical matters, maybe maybe you say uh, philosophy of religion is not as practical, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a large field, and I think this is really fun stuff. Well, I, I really appreciate Parker your attempt to see the practical dimensions of of my work. As as you pointed out, this is certainly something that's true. I will say of me, and I I I, I don't speak for her, but certainly my colleague Jennifer Lackey as well, and many others. 
I find that as I get older, um, I do want to um, I want to do two things. I want to both think about how the the hours that I spend my day thinking about these theories bear on real life. Yeah. Um, and I also want to make sure that, that that I and others return to the joys that brought me into philosophy in the first place. And often those two things go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So I've really enjoyed I do continue to think about, as you call them, the abstract questions. But I I really get a kick out of thinking about how can these things actually apply to everyday life? Um, yeah. It's one of the reasons why social epistemology is so interesting to me, as so many people have seen in the last uh, five years or so. It's it's really it's applicable. A social there's a social epistemology dimension to so much phenomena, uh, that, that so many phenomena that that um, it's just it's fun to think about. Well, and that, that's what I was about to just bring back up. You keep anticipating all these points. It's great, um, but your your work on social epistemology it's so cool because it's so interpersonal, and it there's like a I don't even know how to describe it. There's like a good feeling that I get from thinking we depend on each other for knowledge. We depend on each other. Uh, that's why I like Donald Davidson's uh, triangulation argument, like mm-hmm. with, whether it's true or not, you know, a lot of people say it's not true, but, but you would, how do I know I, um, how do I know I'm not in a brain in a vat or how do I know that uh, there's other minds? Well, because I had to have other minds. I need other people in order to be who I am today. And I think that's what's so cool about your work is that it shows that we are social creatures, um, that we're not just uh, a brain on a stick or whatever like that, but we we actually need each other, uh, even even for knowledge. I, I appreciate the, the, the compliment. I, I want to give um, one out as well to another philosopher who um, – uh, I just whose work I, I just have always admired in this respect, and that is uh, the late Catherine Hawley. She she tragically passed away last year. Hmm. She has done some unbelievably thoughtful work on the nature of trust, and uh, in thinking about the nature of trust, she has front and center the idea that we so depend on one another that our 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 ways of thinking, our moral ways of thinking, our epistemic ways of thinking, are bound up with our mutual codependence in many ways. And she um, she was an inspiration in this respect. So I can't help but hear her name and, and, and her voice when I, when I hear your appreciation for this kind of social epistemology. And, and it, it's really one of the, the biggest losses for philosophy that, that, um, that she passed away last year. She was, yeah. my, she was a colleague of mine at, uh, at St. Andrews. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for, for uh, honoring her there. Um, so Dr. Goldberg or Sandy, um, what, what can people be expecting from you uh, lately? What, what else uh, you're, you're obviously working on this. What else uh, can we look forward to you producing? So I'm very, very, one of the things that I am trying to do is I am always trying to think about the ways in which the, 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 the things that I think about have practical application. So I actually have started trying to think about more public facing philosophy as, you, as you're talking about. That is something that we'll see if that's successful or not. That is something that I am going to try to do. In addition, I, I, I'm always obsessed with the questions that arise in social epistemology regarding our, um, our dependence on one another. The form that that's taken in the last, uh, last year or so is that I, I'm, I'm doing work right now with a, a colleague um, at another university, Karim Khalifa, who is actually a, a, um, a philosopher of science. He and I have started a bunch of papers trying to think about how social epistemology can be applied to certain questions in philosophy of science. And I continue to be interested in speech act theory and the mm. ways in which we um, uh, we put normative pressure on one another in our speech exchanges. So that's also something that I've been thinking a lot about and, and continue to write about. So those are the those are the the areas where I continue to think and, and write. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, you're s- super productive. Uh I, I could learn a, a thing or two from you, like just the, the <laughs> way you, you answer emails and, and send notes. And it's been really it's been uh, really awesome inter- interacting with you. Um, 
Sandy, do you do you have a a website that that people can reference for for more of your work? It uh, I do, and in fact, if you want, I'm going to look it up right now. It sure. is at the on the Northwestern site, okay. and the the actual full the full. Um, let's just go to the Northwestern site, and the full name is philosophy.northwestern.edu backslash people backslash continuing dash faculty backslash index dot html um pound g okay so if anyone doesn't have it you can just go to the philosophy department at northwestern that's and it can be found right under the faculty uh the faculty list awesome yeah and i'll put a link in the description there too sorry to make you read out the whole thing yeah <laughs> but you everyone you can find it uh wherever you're getting this podcast at uh well sandy this has been awesome man i really appreciate it for those who have liked this conversation go back and check our uh episode on brain in a vat i'll also put the link in the description here you can find it and note if you're looking uh on YouTube here. Uh, that's going to have to do it for us for now. But uh, Sandy, seriously appreciate all the, all the work that you're doing and for taking time out in your hugely, uh, massively busy schedule to come on and talk with me and, and school me on some philosophy. Parker, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back. I enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. That's going to have to do it for now, folks. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God. <laughs>